I want to welcome you in the name of Christ. I'm glad that you're here at our evening service. This marks a year. A year ago, we had our first service, and we praise God for that. Uh, we've been preaching through a series, a uh, series through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which are our doctrinal standards of the PCA. Um, and today we're on question six, which is about the Trinity. Uh, so I've selected two Trinitarian passages to preach from, uh, but first let me uh, pray uh, for the preaching of God's word for the needs of the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Father, we thank you that even as we just sang this wonderful song from Isaiah 43, that when we pass through the waters, you'll be with us, Lord, that we're reminded that in the place of transition, in the place of change, that we're united uh, to you uh, by the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us. Father, I thank you that this holds us fast and secure, that you are uh, literally with us and in us, uh, and you do not leave us or forsake us. Father, I thank you uh, for the Trinity, for the three persons in one God, and pray, gracious Father, that you would give us uh, hearts that seek to know you more, Lord, to learn who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that as we learn to know you, that you would cause us to become more dependent upon you and look to you for all of our needs. Father, would you work even through my weaknesses uh, for your glory? We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me read from uh, 2 Corinthians and Galatians, and our response will be, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the word of the Lord. The thing that these uh, two passages uh, have in common is that they are both Trinitarian and they are both about relationships. We're going to focus a little bit more on the Corinthians passage throughout this sermon, but I will touch on the Galatians passage at the end of it. Um, Now, Fair warning, you can make fun of me for what I'm about to say, Um, but I like to listen to a country station that plays solely 80s and 90s country music when I work in my garage in my free time. There's a song that I felt perfectly captures how it is that we learn relationships. So I'm I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to read it to you. It's by Rodney Atkins. It's only a couple of stanzas. So he says, driving through the town, just my boy and me, with a happy meal in his booster seat, knowing that he couldn't have the toy till his nuggets were gone. A green traffic light turned straight to red, and I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath as fries went flying and his orange drink covered his lap. Well, that four-year-old said a four-letter word, and it started with S, and I was concerned. And I said, son, now where'd you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you. Dad, ain't that cool? 
I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants. We're just alike, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do. I've been watching you. The primary place where we all learn relationships is in our family. It's from our parents. Now, there are many places we learn relationships as well. We learn relationships from media and TV, from friends. But hopefully, the main thing that should shape our relationships is our faith. In our text today, we see that although we learn relationships from many different places, the main place we should understand relationships is in the Trinity. The relationships that exist between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the way this triune God relates to us. The problem is, not only do we not understand the Trinity, um, but we have really broken relationships in our own lives. We have very broken relationships. Every fracture of relationship we experience is a fundamental distorting of the relationship that exists in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If I could put it a different way, if you want healthy relationships, you need to look at the relationship of the members of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Healthy relationships reflect Trinitarian relationships. That's my main point. I want to look at it in three ways. First, I want to ask the question, what is the problem? What's the problem with our relationships? Second, what do healthy relationships look like? And then third, how do we achieve this? So let's begin by looking at the problem. In order to understand these last statements by Paul in 2 Corinthians, let me tell you the story of of what's happening, the backstory of what's happening in the letter to the Corinthians. So first remember, this is the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and this letter precedes his third visit to Corinth. You see, Paul did not want to return to Corinth. He was on his way to Ephesus, and he decided he would go through Macedonia, uh, when he got word that the Corinthian church was in absolute turmoil. Timothy informed Uh, Paul, that these church members of Corinth were following another gospel. So when Paul gets word that the Corinthian church is in rebellion and turmoil, he returns to Corinth in person. This was his second visit to Corinth. When he gets there, he finds a church in utter rebellion and instead of using his apostolic authority to put them in their place, Uh, Paul suffers humiliation by his own choosing on their behalf and for their sake in order to extend mercy and kindness in hopes that the Corinthian church would repent. Now what's amazing is that they do repent. And you can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The majority of the Corinthians repent, but there is still a uh, rebellious minority that exists in the church In this room, my rebellious minority is under the influence of Paul's opponents, these opponents who continue to reject the true gospel. In response to this minority, Paul writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia in his anticipation for his third visit to Corinth. So here's a quick summary of 2 Corinthians. Chapters 1 through 7 is written to strengthen that faithful majority that exists. 
Chapters 8 to 9 is an ex- for an expression of their repentance and their giving. And then chapters 10 to 13 is primarily focused on those, that minority who rebels. So, you finish reading chapters 10 to 13, Paul suffering on behalf of these rebellious people. And I'm putting this in context for you. And then he says to them, he says to the whole church, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So you see, the context of 2 Corinthians really affects the way that we read these last verses. All this talk of peace and restoration and agreement and love and greeting is because in the church of Corinth, there is no peace. There is no love. There is no restoring. There is no agreement. There is no greeting. So it's not just fluffy words at the end of a, a letter. There's an intention to it. But it doesn't end there in his, these final, final words. And, and it's important to always note the last words are important words in a book. He turns his attention to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul blesses the whole church, including that rebellious minority that exists. Paul's last words to them, if I could summarize the passage, are calling the Corinthians to act towards each other the way that we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit act towards you. Relating with each other the way that we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relating amongst themselves and with you. Now this is my first point. You have to know a good relationship in order to have a good relationship. You have to understand the relationship that God has in himself, this triune relationship, and consequently the relationship he has with us in order to understand how you can relate to your spouse your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, even the dog down the street. So let me go back to this Westminster uh, Confession statement we read. The question was, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer was, there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. So what does this teach us about the relationship of the Godhead? Who is this God we worship? A couple uh, simple but important things. So first, we worship one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. and son uh, And the Son is not the Spirit. And yet the three are one. So this should make your brain hurt a little bit. And if you consider the God we worship, it's supposed to. Something that will kind of come up again uh, when thinking about the Trinity is that we can only comprehend the God of the universe, the God who is great, the God Almighty, to the degree he reveals himself to us. And then we reach what I had an uh, old New Testament professor call uh, the hem of the eternal. That invisible line where we recognize that he is God Almighty and we are humans. Second, the three are same in substance, or the Greek is homoousios. Uh, That's from the Greek homo, meaning the same, and ousios, meaning essence. 
The word changed uh, from essence when it was translated into the Latin to substance. But in early Christian writing, the word that is probably best translated is consubstantial. Meaning that while there are three distinct persons, they share the same essence or substance, and yet they are one God. Thirdly, the three persons of the Godhead are equal in power and glory. The Father is not more powerful than the Son, nor the Son more powerful than the Spirit, nor the Spirit than the Father. They share equally in the power and the glory of being the God of the universe. Now, here is why this matters for the purpose of our sermon. You were made in the image of this God. I want you to remember Genesis 1 and 2. You, man and woman, were created to reflect the very relationship, that very nature that God shares within himself, the relationship that the Father shares with the Son, shares with the Spirit, shares with the Father. You were created to be relational and you were created to live out those relationships in a particular way. At our most fundamental level, the problem we have in relationships comes back to a misunderstanding or or a complete rejection of the way you were created to love. To put it simply, did you ever wonder why you were so bad at relating to people? I'm not calling you all bad at relating to people. I mean, personally in your lives. If you do, I want you to look back to the Trinity. I want you to look, read, remember the way that the Father loved the Son. The way that the Son freely submitted to the Father and the way that the Spirit was poured out graciously into our hearts. I want you to look at Paul's words here in the benediction. Grace, love, and fellowship. These words characterize the Trinity, the God we love and worship. The words ought to characterize the way we relate to each other. Do they characterize you? Would your relationships with God or with others be characterized by grace, love, and fellowship? My guess is there's not a person in this room who does not have at least one relationship that is a struggle in his or her life. So what do we do? I want us to first gain understanding through Paul of how to work in difficult relationships. And this is my second point, what a healthy relationships look like. So first, uh, let's think about unhealthy relationships. Now this isn't hard to do. I know in your mind, probably uh, right now, you're thinking about a particular relationship, a particular person um, that is difficult. Um, Maybe one you're you have experienced or are experiencing. So my guess is that most of you um, experience difficult relationships in your family. Maybe most of you have a family member in mind. Why is family so difficult? I'm just going to list a few reasons. First, uh, you're most comfortable with your family. Um, So the way you relate to them may be less uh, inhibited than if you were to relate to a stranger or a friend. Uh, Second, you know them probably better than anyone else, and they know you as well. And then third, you care deeply about your family. You care deeply about them. God created something in us that draws us to familial relationships. It is no surprise then that when the Apostle Paul talks about the church, he uses family language. Because this isn't a business. 
This is a family. So family is an area you may have difficult relationships, but maybe work is another one, the people you spend eight, nine, ten hours a day with. Um, maybe next door neighbor or a friend who is close to you, maybe a friend who has betrayed you. Maybe if you're a, a Christian, someone who thinks they know you, but because they don't share your faith, they miss the deepest part of who you are. Almost every relationship has a fracture in it. Now fractures, if stressed, can become breaks. There are degrees of hurt in every relationship. Now when Paul says these words in verses 11 to 13, he is speaking to the whole church, including the rebellious minority. And he is giving them a picture of what godly relationships look like. Godly, when I say godly here, I don't just mean powerful relationships. I mean relationships that reflect the Trinity. And I'll touch on these briefly that he mentions. First he says, rejoice. Rejoice. When you're in the midst of a broken relationship, I don't know about you, but I don't want to rejoice. It's not the first thing I would uh, do. But Paul in, um, these are all commands, by the way, says rejoice. Why? I think it's actually the same as when he says it in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. He says what? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Why? It's an acknowledgement that no matter your situation in life, no matter how bad the relationship is, you have a God that is in control. You have a God that is moving you to redemptive purposes. So when he says these words, there's this minority of rebellious people in the Corinthian church and Paul acknowledges the Lord is at work. Rejoice. Rejoice. Sometimes in the midst of a difficult relationship, you must be reminded that God has not left you. You have reason to rejoice. Rejoice. Next, aim for restoration. Now here Paul just straight up tells the Corinthians the goal of their fractured relationship. Restoration. To be restored. And I'll drill this deeper into your hearts with a question. When you're in a fight or a broken relationship, is your aim, is your goal, your purpose, restoration? Or are you simply trying to wound each other? Next is comfort. Comfort's interesting um, because that is how Paul began the letter. If you remember uh, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4, I'll read it for you briefly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What is Paul saying? He's saying there's a comfort that exists in the Trinity, in God, that God then gives to you so you can give to others. Are you primarily concerned with your own comfort or another's comfort? Do you give what you've been given? The next one is a big one and a hard one. Uh, agree with one another. So today this is difficult to do. Agree with one another. In a divided age, what kind of message are we sending the world about Christ if we cannot come to agreement in our own church? 
Now, on the whole, I find a lot of agreement in this church, and I'm thankful for that. But let me challenge us in this way. If you find yourself in disagreement with a brother or a sister in Christ, is your instinct to work towards agreement? Or do you just blow up? Or do you just run away? Working towards agreement requires patience, it requires time, but at the least it requires moving towards each other. Our agreement, or another translation is like-mindedness, shows the watching world the power of the triune God. Now agreement follows peace. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. And peace really gets us into the gospel. You can only bring peace if the spirit of peace is in you. And in fact, I'll get to this in my last point, but you can't do any of the things I'm saying unless the spirit of peace is in you. Unless you don't just know the Trinity, but the spirit of that second person. It's kind of an interesting way to say it, that the third person of the second person is in you. But this is what... uh, Paul is saying, let me just read Romans 14, verses, uh, verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. True peace comes from outside yourself. Peace and peacemaking come by the Spirit of God. Now lastly, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm just a couple words on this. First, greeting is important. We should not underestimate greeting. Greeting reminds us that our relationship is still good. We still have a good relationship. Uh, Social norms are to ignore people with whom we have a bad relationship. So greeting reminds us that we're okay. Um, Second, it's affectionate. In this case, it's a holy kiss, and it's important. Affection's important. Now, Paul isn't saying, is not saying that we should all start kissing each other. Please don't do that. But Paul is raising the question, do you express affection to each other? Now, this is important for Presbyterians. We can come off a little cold, but affection can be expressed many ways. A smile, a warm handshake, a greeting, being reminded, I see you and I remember you and I care about you, is a way that we can Seek to show one another affection. So that completes Paul's list. Now all these attributes, we might call communicable attributes, meaning that God treats us this way. God communicates within himself and with us in this way. He restores us. He comforts us. He unites us to himself. Do you realize there's no more like-mindedness than the Spirit of God? dwelling in you. He gives us his peace. He loves us. And he's affectionate towards us. Everything Paul calls the Corinthians to do, we find true in the Trinity. So again, let me ask you, do these characteristics characterize your relationships? If not, I want us to look at how we can achieve this. This is our third point. Now, how we achieve this Uh, is why I included the Galatians passage. And it says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, 
crying, Abba, Father. So I like this verse for a few reasons. Um, One is that we have all three persons of the Trinity in this one verse explicitly. We have the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Son, the second person, and we cry out to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. All three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are in this one little verse. So if you ever need a verse, I'd say, ah, where's the Trinity in the Bible? There you go. Now I want you to notice that they are distinct in their roles, even in this one verse. God the Father is the one that sends uh, the Spirit of His Son, who does the work, uh, into our hearts. The persons of the Trinity are different in their roles, R-O-L-E-S, but equal in power and in glory. Now, you may say to me, Joseph, I can think of a time when Jesus certainly seemed less powerful, less glorious. And for the time that he was on this earth, you would be right. The best example of this comes from Philippians 2, 5-11, and I'll just remind you and read it to you. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, although he was God and had all the power and the glory of God, willingly submitted, emptied himself by putting on human flesh, like you and me, was obedient to the point of death, so that then... After death, God raises him up, highly exalting him, so that one day everybody will confess Christ as Lord. Now, God the Father did not force the Son to take this posture. Jesus willingly submitted. Furthermore, God then raises him up and exalts him. So look, there are a lot of heresies surrounding the Trinity I might have made a couple on the way. I don't know. I hope not. Um, but there, it's easy to do. And one of the many that I'll share with you is called the eternal subordination of the Son. There's one uh, Trinitarian heresy. The eternal subordination of the Son is the idea that the Son is not equal in power and in glory to the Father. That he is eternally subordinate. Now let me tell you why this is so dangerous. You see, every relationship requires willful submission. Did you realize that? Every relationship requires willful submission. Every healthy relationship. How do I know this? Because it's in the very fabric of the Trinity. It's in the very nature of the Godhead. So why is it dangerous then if I say that Jesus is now eternally subordinate to the Father? Well, remember, we're created in God's image. And we may be tempted to view ourselves as somehow more significant, more important than another person in the relationship. If Jesus could be eternally subordinate, why wouldn't you be less important than me? Or me less important than you? It's significant that Jesus willfully 
empties himself, willfully gives up his power, willfully, freely lays his life down. One of the most significant problems in fractured relationships is our complete unwillingness to be the one to give up the power and the glory. Our most significant problem in broken relationships is our unwillingness to humble ourselves the way that Jesus humbled himself on the cross. But Joseph, you don't know what this person has done to me. You don't know how much I've sacrificed, how much I've given, how hurtful they've been to me. And you're absolutely right. I don't know. And I am making no judgment over what has been done. But I can with full confidence tell you that Jesus does know. Jesus knows what it is to be hurt by us. He knows what it is to feel pain, to feel betrayal, to feel relationships broken. And not just to sacrifice on behalf of other people, but to actually become the sacrifice himself. And yet, he humbles himself. Now, there was never any uh, disagreement. There was never any broken relationship in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was never any argument that they had with each other. But there was a fracture that was willingly made. There was a relationship that was willingly, for a moment in time, broken between the Father and between the Son. When Jesus hung on the cross, you remember Psalm 22, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, our relationship with God is fundamentally broken. Every human that was born into this world was born into a broken relationship with the God of the universe. We are born in enmity. We're born in sin. We are born desiring the wrong thing. We are born hopeless and without any righteousness of our own, except that the second person of the Trinity willingly has his relationship with the Father broken so that yours can be mended. Jesus was broken, his body broken, his spirit betrayed, his peace gone. So that you and God would be restored. Your body's healed. Your spirit's secure. Your peace overflowing. Jesus is the picture of how relationships should be. Let me close with this. And, and this is just, again, why eternal subordination is so dangerous. Your willing submission to each other does not mean you have inherently less power and glory. Your willing submission to each other does not mean you have inherently less power and glory. Maybe for a time, like Jesus, you are choosing the weaker position. But just as Christ was exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father, you can willingly submit to one another, holding on to the truth and the promise that God exalts the humble. God exalts you. How do you know this? Galatians 4, 6. You have been made a son or a daughter in Christ. 
At one time you walked in darkness, but now the Spirit of God dwells in your heart. At one time you wouldn't dare to call the God of the universe Father, let alone call him Abba. But now because of that fractured relationship between God and Christ on your behalf, he is your Abba. He is your Father. Your relationship with the God of the universe has been mended. You now know what it's like to move from a slave to a son. Now if this is true, how much more can you love your neighbor or your spouse or your friend or your coworker? Now, maybe this is the first time. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. And here's my encouragement in my prayer. That you would simply believe that the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ, died for you. Not just the believers in the room, but that he died for you as well. And that you too would believe in Christ. That he would mend your relationship with God the Father and then with each other. Let's pray.